Let's turn in the scriptures together to 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel 7. The focus of the sermon will be on verses 12 through 16. So pay special attention to those verses. And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in an house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word within with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me in house of cedar? Now therefore... So shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcoat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And now begins the words of the text of the sermon. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity... I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Then went King David in, And sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. 
And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land, before thy people which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. We read the sacred scriptures that far. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of God to David in our text is a very significant and glorious development in God's promise to bring forth a seed who would be the Messiah, who would ultimately be born in Bethlehem, the Savior, about whom the angels would sing which we are remembering in this series of Advent sermons as we enter into the Christmas season. If we go back to the very dawn of time, we find in Genesis that God lit the flame of hope for that coming Messiah already in the Garden of Eden. After the fall of our first parents, when he spoke the promise to them for the very first time that he would bring forth from the woman a seed who would bruise and conquer the serpent. Many years later, after the flood, God promised to Noah that he would bring forth that seed from Noah through his son Shem and through his descendant Abraham. God would promise to Abraham and Sarah to give them a seed in their old age, a child of wonder, a miracle child. And he promised them that not in Ishmael, 
but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God gave to Isaac and Rebekah twins, Jacob and Esau, and God made clear to them through the promise, not in Esau, but through Jacob will I bring forth this promised seed. God gave to Jacob those twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Israel, and he promised through a prophecy of Jacob himself in his extreme old age that the scepter of kingship will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, the Messiah, showing that he would bring forth this seed from the tribe of Judah. God would later reveal that he had chosen a man by the name of Boaz out of the tribe of Judah, a man of Judah, a man who lived in Bethlehem of Judah, who married Ruth, the Moabitess. And God gave to Boaz and Ruth a son named Obed. He gave to Obed a son named Jesse. And he gave to Jesse many sons. And God revealed that the seed would come forth from the youngest son of Jesse, a lowly shepherd boy, a boy whom his father considered so lowly that when Samuel came to town, revealing that he would choose, God would choose one of his sons to be the next king, Jesse didn't even call David. A lowly shepherd boy, and yet a boy of great faith, who wrote beautiful psalms of praise to the Lord his God. A boy who was a mighty man of valor, who killed a bear and a lion when they attacked his sheep. A boy who by faith and nothing but a sling and a stone brought down the giant Goliath. It was that boy that Samuel was sent to anoint to be the next king of Israel. And it was through that boy that God would bring forth the promised seed. David was that boy. And Samuel poured the anointing oil over David's head, showing him that soon he will remove wicked Saul from the throne of Israel and exalt David. And God did that. Through many years of patient waiting, through many years of trial and adversity and persecution, At last, God exalted his chosen servant David to the throne of Israel and made him king over his covenant people. God gave him rest from all of his enemies round about. He gave him the city of Jerusalem as his capital city. And he even enabled David to carry up the long-lost Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and erect a tabernacle for it. It was then, when David had rest from all his enemies, when his kingdom was established round about him, when God had richly blessed him, that David was restless in his house. He had built for himself a beautiful palace. But the Lord didn't have a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And so David wanted to build a house for the Lord his God. And he expressed this desire this good desire to Nathan the prophet. Nathan said to him, Do it. All that is in your heart, do it. Build the Lord a temple. 
But that very night, the Lord appeared to Nathan in a vision and said to him, No, go to my servant David and tell him, Has anyone ever built a house for me to dwell in? Throughout all of the ages of the history of Israel, have I ever commanded anyone to build me a temple? No, you will not build me a house, David. But God promised through Nathan, I will build you a house. That promise of God to David in our text is an outstanding moment in the history of prophecy. It's an outstanding moment in the whole history of the church, especially in the Old Testament, in the history of the covenant, of God's unfolding of his covenant mercies to his people, and in the history of the promise of the coming Messiah. The promise of our text will form the foundation and the background for all future prophecies of the Messiah throughout the rest of the Old Testament as we hope to see in the rest of our sermons in this series. So let's consider together David promised a son on his throne forever. Let's notice, first of all, that God promised a seed to reign forever. Secondly, a seed who is the Son of God. And finally, a seed to build a house for God. Turning now to our text in verses 12 through 16, let's notice first of all what God promised to David through the vision of Nathan the prophet. He said, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. That's obviously the main point of the text. God repeats that in verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And again in verse 16. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. What a glorious, magnificent promise God spoke to David that day. Notice in the first place, God was promising David that after he sleeps with his fathers in death, after he departs from this life into glory, God will set up his son after him to be the king over Israel. Now that was a glorious promise because God had not done that for Saul, the first king of Israel, but God had removed him and cut off his line. But now God promises to David, after you die, I won't do that. I will raise up your seed, your son, a child of your own flesh and blood, and he will sit on your throne in Jerusalem and reign over my people as you did. What a wonderful and comforting promise that was to David as he sat on the throne. But that's not all. Furthermore, We can see in this promise of God that he was not just promising to give David a child who would reign after him, but he was promising to extend in many generations the house and line of David as a royal dynasty in Israel. 
He was promising to establish that throne and his seed after him, which would proceed out of his bowels, his grandson, his great-grandson, his great-great-grandson. God is promising that his line will continue to sit on the throne for many generations. God was promising to give to David and to his line the right to rule over his covenant people Israel the right to rule, and also he was promising to preserve that line so that there would always be a descendant of David who would carry that royal right from that time forward. Wonderful promise. But further still, this promise of God was not just to give David a son or to extend his lineage and his dynasty for many generations, But the promise of God was to establish his throne and kingdom forever. To give to David the promise of an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne. That's why the promise of the text is such a glorious and significant moment in the history of promise. Because God here in this particular text promised the establishment of an everlasting kingdom. God was promising that this covenant people that he had gathered out of Egypt into Israel would now take the shape and the form of a kingdom that would never end and would have a king for all eternity. From that point on, unto all eternity, there would be a king to reign over his people. So we can easily see that this promise of God to David was nothing less than the promise to send the promised Messiah through him. And it was a promise that this Messiah, this seed, this Savior, this Christ who is coming is going to be a king and he is going to reign over my covenant people for all eternity. God's faithfulness to this promise, to keep this promise, is one of the greatest themes of the rest of Scripture. Starting here in 2 Samuel 7, if you read through the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you're going to find that one of the greatest themes of the Bible is that God fulfilled this promise. God began to fulfill this promise immediately after David slept with his fathers. Immediately when David departed from this life into glory, God raised up his son Solomon to sit on the throne. And he established the throne of Solomon for 40 years, giving to him a kingdom of peace and riches and extending his borders far and wide. But after Solomon slept with his fathers, God continued to keep the promise and raised up his son Rehoboam. And even though God divided the kingdom in the days of Rehoboam, he continued to maintain the promise and the line of David in the kingdom of Judah from generation to generation, from one king to the next to the next. And even though some of those kings showed themselves to be wicked and ungodly, such as Ahaz, who offered up his sons to the idol Molech. Yet there were also godly and righteous kings. And through the good kings and the bad kings, God kept his promise 
to maintain the line of David, the house of David, through all the generations of history. Many years later, God would inspire a poet to write down the beautiful words of Psalm 89 that we hope to sing after the sermon this afternoon that we used as our call to worship in this service. In Psalm 89, the psalmist reflected on this promise of God and the faithfulness of God to that promise from generation to generation. It was this text and this promise that the psalmist had in mind when he wrote, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. And with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. The psalmist was singing with joy and thanksgiving that God had been keeping this promise for so many generations. However, in the days of the psalmist of Psalm 89, God had cast down the earthly throne of David. God had broken down his earthly realm. God had cast down his earthly crown. He had cut off the kingdom of David and sent away his people into captivity in Babylon. So the psalmist not only reflected on God's mercies and faithfulness for so many generations, but then he also asked the question, how can this be? Has the Lord forgotten his promise? Has the Lord broken his promise? And we know the answer to that is, that's impossible. It's impossible that God broke his promise. But what we see when God cast down the throne of David in the Old Testament was that he was sweeping away the earthly pictures to make way for the higher spiritual reality. God had to do away with the earthly throne, the earthly crown, the earthly realm in Jerusalem to make way for the rise of the higher heavenly and everlasting throne of the Messiah himself. And so through the captivity and through many centuries of darkness, God continued to preserve the seed. He preserved the line of David so that there was always a son of David who carried forward the rights of royalty. Until at last, that line came down to a virgin named Mary and her espoused husband named Joseph, both of whom were from the house and lineage of David, the king. And God then kept this promise to David in the ultimate and truest sense when he sent his own son into our flesh to be conceived in the womb of a virgin, but not just any virgin, a virgin from the house and line of the king, King David. Mary and Joseph, her espoused husband, who was also from the royal line of David through a slightly different genealogy. God sent his son to be conceived and born in the womb of Mary, and he sent his angel Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth 
to tell her the good news. In Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, we read that Gabriel said to Mary that she would bring forth a son who will be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. God then sovereignly reigned over Caesar Augustus, the emperor in Rome, so that he issued a decree that all the world should be taxed, which led Joseph and Mary, when she was great with child, to the city of Bethlehem. The city of old Boaz and Ruth. The city of Jesse, the city where David was born and raised, where he led his sheep in those fields outside of Bethlehem. So that in Bethlehem, Jesus was born as a testimony of his right to the royal dynasty of David, that he is the heir to the throne of the everlasting kingdom of God. The rest of the New Testament emphatically teaches that Jesus is the son of David. In Matthew 1, verse 1, the first gospel of the New Testament, the very first verse says, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In Matthew 21, verse 9, on Palm Sunday, we read, and the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. In Acts 13, the apostle Paul preached to the Jews in the synagogue in Antioch, that God raised up unto them David to be their king. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, wrote to the Roman church, Paul, an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, he wrote to Timothy, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And in the last book of the Bible, Jesus himself, having been crucified, dead, risen and ascended into heaven, appears to John in a vision. In Revelation 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. That's the gospel the gospel of God's promise and fulfillment. The gospel is that God promised to make the seed of David come and sit on the throne forever. And he kept his promise. So will you join with the psalmist? And will you sing of the mercies of the Lord forever? 
And with your mouth will you make known his faithfulness to all generations? Will you make known to your children, to your neighbors, that God has kept his promise to David and raised up a Messiah? The son of David has come. The son of David sits on the throne. And he reigns and will reign for all eternity. That's what we believe as Christians. That's the gospel. We don't believe that when Jesus came, God delayed and postponed the fulfillment of the promise, as some professing Christians teach. We don't believe that when Jesus came, when he suffered and died and rose from the dead, when the Jews rejected him, that God then brought about a church age and delayed the kingdom age to a future millennium. That God has postponed this reign of the Messiah to a future 1,000-year kingdom on this earth. But we believe, according to the scriptures, that God has kept his promise. He has sent the son of David, and he now reigns. He reigns at the right hand of God over the covenant people of God. But no longer is his kingdom limited to Israel in Jerusalem, but his kingdom is universal. He reigns over the people of God found in every nation and tribe and tongue. And Jesus will reign forever and ever. That's what we believe and confess as Christians. We bow the knee to King Jesus, the Son of David, our Lord. That's our glorious hope as well. In this world of chaos and trouble and confusion, we serve an exalted and glorious king. We belong to him. We are citizens of his kingdom. And in Christ, we are kings and queens who will reign with him forever. In the second place, let's notice in this promise of God to David a very beautiful aspect. God said through Nathan the prophet to David in verse 14 of our text, about this coming seed of David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. What a wonderful part of the promise. God was promising to establish a relationship with the son of David, which would be a father-son relationship. We saw and heard about that in our first sermon this morning. We know that God has designed the father-son relationship to be one of the most intimate and blessed of all human relationships and a picture of his everlasting covenant of grace. God designed fatherhood to be that a father would beget a son or a daughter in love as another person with whom to have a relationship, to talk to him, to walk with him, to have fellowship with him, to dwell together with him in the home, in the family, to love him, to protect him, to provide for him. That's the role of a father toward his son. And the role of a son toward his father is to receive the love of him who begot me, 
to walk with him, to talk with him, to honor him and respect him. God has designed this relationship such that after the fall, a father would be responsible for the chastening of his children, to discipline them, to correct them when they go astray, to show them what is true, to use the rod of reproof. But God has designed fatherhood in such a way that fathers must never forsake their children and must never remove from their children, even when they chasten them, their mercy and compassion and love. So God has designed this relationship to be a picture of his relationship with his people in the covenant of grace. So what God is saying to David in this promise is to establish his covenant with the son of David and through the son of David with all of his people. And that that relationship is like that between a father and his son. God fulfilled that promise as well. He was faithful to that promise. When God gave to David the son Solomon, God established his covenant with Solomon. God was a father to him. And Solomon was his son, and Solomon knew himself to be a son of the Lord. That was true also with all of the other elect kings in Israel and Judah. God was their father, and they were his sons. He wasn't a father to the reprobate kings. He wasn't a father to wicked Ahaz or to the other wicked kings. But he was a father to the righteous kings in Judah to Hezekiah, to Josiah, to Jehoshaphat, and to others. In Psalm 89, the psalmist also sang of that beautiful aspect of the promise in verses 26 through 28. The psalmist wrote that the son of David shall cry unto me, Thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And God says, Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. And just as God said to David, If your son lives in iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. And God did that to the elect kings. Think of Solomon, who took all those wives from all those heathen nations and turned his heart toward their gods and served them and built temples for them. Because of those dreadful and gross sins, God chastened Solomon with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. He rent away from his children after him half of the kingdom of Israel and gave it to his neighbor Jeroboam. So also with the other godly kings, God chastened them when they walked in sin. But God did not take away his mercy from them. Isaiah speaks of that beautiful reality in Isaiah 55. Isaiah, who lived in those days when there were evil kings and good kings. And he speaks there of the sure mercies of David. Even when the sons of David walked in sin, God did not forsake the line of David. He chastened, but he did not remove his mercy from them. 
But this promise, too, ultimately would be fulfilled in the great and everlasting Son of David. Really, when we see this part of the promise, verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. We need to see there that God is revealing to David his intention to manifest his own covenant life within himself in the Holy Trinity. Within the Holy Trinity, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father in the Holy Spirit. The Father eternally says to the Son, Thou art my Son. And the Son eternally says to the Father, And Thou art my Father. And they eternally dwell together in perfect love and peace. That's the blessed and holy Trinity. God dwells in a covenant life eternally within himself. And here God says to David, I'm going to establish that kind of a relationship with your seed after you and ultimately with the Messiah who is to come. Because I want to reveal to you that most blessed reality of the Father dwelling with the Son. So God fulfilled this when he sent his own Son into our flesh in the line of David. And when Jesus was baptized, we all know what voice was heard from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And again on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Jesus is the Son of God in an altogether unique sense than all of the other sons of David. Because Jesus alone is the only begotten Son. Jesus alone is the eternal and natural Son. Jesus alone has always been the Son of God from all eternity. And he came into this world and was born of Mary, the son of David. Because in Christ, God now reveals to us, I am your father and you are my children. But unlike all of the other children and sons of David, Jesus never committed iniquity. Never throughout his life did he ever stray from the perfect path of God's law. He always loved the Lord his God perfectly and with all of his heart. And therefore God didn't have to chasten him with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. And yet, Jesus bore on his shoulders our iniquities. As Isaiah says in chapter 53, he bore our iniquities and he carried our griefs and our sorrows. And it was through his chastisement that we were saved. God didn't chasten Jesus for his sins. God cursed him for our sins. He cursed him on the cross. The son of David didn't come into this world to establish a mighty, glorious, wealthy kingdom on earth. He came to shed his blood. He came to lay down his life. He came to give himself to Pontius Pilate and Herod, to the Jews and the Romans, to have his back laid bare and whipped with the scourge of Pilate, torn up and shredded, to have his hands and feet nailed to the cross, to give himself 
for us. To lay down his life for our sins. To suffer the wrath of God that we deserve. That's what the son of David was born to do. And that's what he did. And when he had finished it, God raised him from the dead. And even after God poured out all of his fury and wrath upon the son of David on the cross, the son of David with all of his might and power exhausted it. He finished it. God smiled upon his servant and raised him from the dead. And his mercy did not depart from him. And he still says to him, I am your father and you are my son. And now he sits at the right hand of God to reign forever. And now all who believe in him, God says to us too, and I'm your father, and I'm your father, and I'm your father, and you are my son. The covenant of grace has taken the form of a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. The king is our savior. And the God of this kingdom is our Father. And we, the citizens, are the sons and daughters of the King. Finally, let's notice from this beautiful promise what we read in verse 13. He shall build an house for my name. Remember that David's immediate concern here in the context was he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He had built up his own house. He had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And he had set it up in a tabernacle. But his heart burned within him. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan said to do it. But then the Lord said, no. No, David, not you. That will be the task of your son. And God fulfilled that part of the promise as well. When David slept with his fathers in death and Solomon ascended to the throne, his great task was to build a house for the name of the Lord. He built a glorious and beautiful temple overlaid with gold. And in that temple, God filled his presence and he dwelt with his people for many hundreds of years Symbolically. But as we know, God used Babylon also to burn down that temple, to utterly destroy it. The Ark of the Covenant was destroyed and lost. The temple was destroyed and lost. And even when God brought his people back to Israel and they rebuilt the temple, later he sent Rome to destroy it. And eventually the temple was destroyed, never to be built again. Because you see, God sweeps away the pictures to make way for the higher realities. The Old Testament was a time of pictures. But when the New Testament came, God brought the realities. Again, unlike some professing Christians today, we do not look for and expect a rebuilding of that physical temple. That's not our hope. Many, many people are expecting that a real physical temple 
will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's not how God fulfilled this promise. Rather, let us lay hold upon the words of our Savior himself, who said to the Jews, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. And they said, We took many years to build this temple, and will you build it up in three days? But they didn't understand that he meant the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, destroy my body, crucify Christ, and in three days I will raise up the temple of the Lord. I will raise up the house of the Lord, the everlasting house of the Lord, because the everlasting house is the body of Christ. And not only his physical and literal body, but the church, the church, is the spiritual and everlasting house of the Lord. When God said to David in our text, your son will build a house for my name, what God ultimately meant was, Christ will build up that spiritual house that will have no end. When Jesus said to his disciples, upon this rock I will build my church, what he was saying is, I'm the son of David, come to build the house of the Lord. When the apostle Peter wrote to Christians, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, he teaches us that the building of the house of the Lord is the building of the church throughout the New Testament. The son of David sits at the right hand of God today, And he builds and builds and builds the house of the Lord. Through the preaching of the gospel, he takes out of the nations each one of those lively and precious stones and puts it into place. And he's building up that temple, building it up. And when the last stone is put into place, when the beautiful house of the Lord is complete, then he will come again. Then he will establish not on this earth for a mere 1,000 years, but in the new creation, in the new heavens and in the new earth, the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom that will have no end in which he will reign over the house of the Lord, over the whole covenant people of God, world without end. That's the glorious hope of the promise of our text. You see then how this is an outstanding moment in the history of prophecy and in the history of the covenant and the kingdom of God. This promise reaches to all eternity. This promise gives us hope of the great day when we will all gather around the throne and see David's son face to face. When we will see Christ and bow the knee to him And every tongue will confess he is the rightful and eternal king. And to dwell with God through Christ for all eternity in that blessed covenant in which he is our father and we are his children. That's our hope. Amen. O Lord our God, we sing of the mercies 
of the Lord forever. And with our mouths, we make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Thou hast indeed done wondrous things. Thou art a God of promise and fulfillment. And we thank thee for giving us eyes of faith to lay hold upon the gospel of the coming of Christ. And we pray that thou would fill our hearts with hope for that great day when we will all be gathered before the throne, that higher and eternal throne, to bow the knee to the Son of David and to dwell with thee as our God forever.